Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 310, recorded November 15th, 2022. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I am Brian Arkin. And I'm Adam Hopkins. Welcome, Adam. Great to have you here. Awesome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, people mostly know you, I would imagine, through Sanic, your web framework. Tell people about uh, yourself. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, uh, well, first, I just I just noticed uh, episode 310. So two more episodes and you guys pass uh, the Python version. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's that's Thank a milestone. <laughs> <laughs> six years. We just uh, passed six years, uh, two weeks I, ago. Yeah, that's exciting. I remember when you guys started it. So this is, this is a great you. resource for the community. Cool. Thanks. Um, so just to introduce myself, uh, I'm Adam Hopkins. Uh, I am one of the developers of the Sanic project. Um, my day-to-day -day job, I'm a director of software engineering for uh, Packet Fabric, um, where we, um, you know, day in, day out, I do web development. So that's 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 my gig. Right on. Fun stuff, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Well, Brian, you want to kick us off with our first topic here? Yeah, sure. Um, so this is a, a little bit of an easy topic, uh, tips for clean code in Python. Um, I was, this is from uh, Bob Belderboss from PyBytes. Um, I was playing with this dark mode on and off. It's kind of fun. Anyway. <laughs> um, dark mode is always appreciated in my, my book. Yes. Well, so I would... I, I, this resonated with me. So I'm, I'm going to blast through the tips really pretty quickly. They're just good things to think about. I think it's good occasionally to, to remind yourself of uh, when you're organizing your code. So uh, using smaller units, um, I'm going to come back to this, but essentially it's um, uh, thinking about if you've got huge functions that do a whole bunch of stuff, maybe breaking it up. Um, like I said, I'm going to come back to that a little bit. Uh, magic numbers, always uh, good constants are better than just numbers sitting in your, in your, in your, file somewhere um you know i'm kind of on the fence on the void it's avoid global scopes the third but um there's nothing really global in python it's module level but still if you've got large files global scope can still be confusing so watch that using linters and uh, uh narrowing your uh is a good thing um i'm not actually i'm not going to run all through through the through all the tips there's some good tips here uh so it go Go ahead and read the article. Um, but the thing I wanted to come back to is just this one, this first one, smaller, smaller units, because I just ran into this. So I'm I'm working on refactoring the PyTest check plugin. And currently it was um it's just all in one. I mean, most of the code was in two files, like uh, the the basic plugin hookup, and then all of the rest of the code. And people have added a couple other uh People have added features, and that's a good thing. But I have had my had a hard time keeping my head around um, all the code in there, and uh, and it was confusing myself. So um, I I've been working on splitting it up. So I split up all the code into in and I split it up into this 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 notion of the single responsibility principle. I thought about the uh, the this plugin as the features, and it's either large features that kind of take up their whole, their enough to be their own module or some related features that are kind of all together. And I've split up the code into different modules about those sorts of pieces. Um, and the, the nice thing about that is I've also done the that with the tests. So I've split the test up into focusing on a feature at a time. So the tests are in multiple tests. So it's a lot more files now, but each little piece is just a few windows for full of code. So it's pretty easy to keep get your head around. Oh, for this feature, all of these things work together. And uh, it's really been great to, to, to work with now. So I haven't published the the, the final yet, but um, the smaller units thing, people do talk about large functions and that's something to watch out for. But large files are a thing to, th to keep a, a mind too. And sometimes sometimes breaking it up. You can go too far too. If you've got a, like a like hundred different modules that are all are like 10 lines long, that's that's too far. Um, but, you know, so. Yeah, I really like the idea of smaller units and you know, both files and for like functions or classes or whatever. And one of the ways that I think about it is if I'm looking at a chunk of code, maybe like an inner part of a loop or, or some other thing, I'm like, oh, I should probably put a comment to describe what that does. Alternatively, I could make it a small function and give it a name that tells you what it does, right? Like if it's, you know, uh, update last login for user, that could be a comment or that you could highlight those five lines of code, extract method and give yeah. it that name, right? Like it just, there's sort of a natural, if I'm, I'm looking at it and I, I don't understand it, how can I 
How can yes. I make it easier to understand? Like that's that's a really productive way to do it, I think. Yeah, especially if that bit of code really isn't the focus of the function. It's just some other stuff that has to be done. <laughs> um, moving it out of the the function proper is 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 good. And then the function name, yeah, just name it something clever. Like I think pop. one of the things you you also really kind of hit on there is is breaking up the test files too, right? And and yeah. so I'm kind of curious to hear, like like you know, typically you know for for maybe for a smaller package, I mean, do you try to keep sort of one test file for one module and keep a module you know, or, um, you know, sometimes I, I feel like when I've done that, even even trying to iterate in all the different things that I might want to test in one file, it could still end up being, you know, a couple thousand lines long. I'm, I'm focusing on features. So um, uh, trying to keep the, like, for instance, the, one of the functionalities for uh, PyTest check is, is stop on fail working um, and work correctly because I'm, you possibly could have multiple failures in in a single test. So how to stop on fail work? Well, there's a is there's a defined way we've defined it for the plugin, and uh, so I've got like one test file that tests the stop on fail functionality. Um, so I I prefer breaking it up into user functionality uh, instead of uh, modules, internal modules. But yeah, right on. Oh, good tips, Bob, and nice find, Brian. One one thing also uh, I noticed that was in this article that I'm probably going to touch on in a little bit uh, sort of that idea of the global scope because because um, uh, that that's definitely something that that I think um, can actually cause cause some problems uh, down the road and I'll, I'll touch on that in, in a little okay. bit. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. There's also a lot of uh, tips in here that can be automated. I mean, you should write code that matches this kind of stuff already, but you know, running the linters, running black. Um, one of them is using, yeah, pre-commit. One of them is using idiomatic code, which you could use Flint. We talked about a bunch of things that like upgrade to, you know, Python two to three, um, what was that? Pi upgrade, I think, yep. whatever you, yeah. Those types of things, like you could, a lot of this stuff could be brought in on the, on the, the tool chain level too, which is kind of nice. Yeah. All right, let's talk about Mastodon. So I don't know if you all have heard, Twitter's kind of going nuts right now. <laughs> it seemed like a place that was just going to be around forever, but uh, apparently maybe no. And so, Brian, I think, I think you maybe encouraged me to go over to Mastodon and check it out a little bit last time. And this was just like a week ago, man. You've like just went crazy. <laughs> I have gone crazy. I'm telling you. But I think there's a lot of cool stuff over here. So uh, I'm, I'm super psyched about it. Um, I just did a Talk Python episode, but I'll pull up a link to that in a moment. But uh, what I found, so you kind of encouraged me to go over there. And I did. And what I found was there's a whole bunch of the people that we know and have yeah. been interacting with over on Twitter. Now they're all over on Mastodon. And it's a super nice, active community. I expected to kind of show up there and go like, well, I'll wait till people show up. But they're I, here. They're I, there. They're right? already there. They're already there. And like, Adam, I saw that you're over there. And Brian, obviously you are. And I got the shows going over there. And so people can follow Python Bytes on Mastodon. They can follow Python. Uh, I'll, I'll put a link to all the various all of our profiles, including Adam's over there in the show notes. And we're all kind of learning at the same time. So even the, you, you show up and they've already got hundreds of friends there, but they're like, they're still learning also. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They are. So yeah, uh, it, Marco, it, uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Adam. I was going to say, it does, it does sort of kind of bring up an interesting question that I've sort of been, you know, feeling is, you know, are people starting to share in two different places now, you know, trying to have conversations in multiple places. And so there is a little bit of an awkward and, and maybe, you know, we'll kind of just, you know, trudge through it and see how it works. But uh, I, I definitely agree that it's, um, it's, it feels very, it feels clean. Like it just yes. feels uh, a, like very, you know, fresh. Maybe it's just cause it's a, it's a, you know, a new app to play with or one. I don't know, but there's, I, I agree. It's I'm, I'm very happy to see that you know people that I'm already you know subscribed to and trying to trying to see what they have to say are already there and uh, um, and you're definitely interested to see uh, see how this develops because uh, I, I think it's it, it you know it can only be positive. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, my philosophy is kind of for the moment to be Mastodon first, not to burn down my Twitter account or to leave my community over there, but just like all right, Twitter looks like it's trying to kill itself. Let me try to put some energy over here. And after Brian kind of got me moving, looking at Mastodon, it, it lines up way better with the ideology of open source and Python communities having this federated different bunch of servers. People can control them. They're open source. There's not one central choke point for it or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think 
I think it's it's really interesting, and I encourage people to check it out. I was going to highlight that Marco out in the audience said, uh, me, two weeks ago, is Mastodon good enough to replace Twitter? <laughs> me now. <laughs> is Twitter good enough to have a replacement for Mastodon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm kind of the same way. All right, so I got a bunch of stuff I want to share real quick with you. So I'll go through yeah. it quickly. Um, that is not it. Got to go in the right order. So I did a really cool episode uh, with um, Gina Houska, Juan Luis, uh, Simon Willison, and oh, I got to update my show notes because she dropped in last minute. Carol Willing as well. So people can check that out. Um, the these different places you should really support them. These little instances, um, like for example, the one that Brian and I are on is Fostot. Fostodon, the free and open source software instance, it went from 2,000 to 40 something thousand users in a week. And their hosting costs went from 100 to $1,000 in wow. the same period, which is a lot. And it's just volunteer, right? That's a lot to be paying. But they have a Patreon, which is really nice. You go to their Patreon and you can sponsor them. You can also do that for Mastodon. If you look at, they have a sort of a statement breakdown of like, here's how much we spend on hosting, how much we spend on CDN and Bitwarden and all these different things and how it breaks down. It turns out, Brian, 2.5 cents per user will fund Mastodon. So awesome. uh, wow. I feel like I feel like we should be doing this. Like we can all spare 2.5 cents or maybe a dollar. Not everybody. And if you can't really, please don't. But most people who are software developers can surely do that. Put another way, out of those 40,000 people, if just 100 of them pay $10 a month, that will also fund Mastodon. So it's very achievable that we could end up in a world that is not ad-ridden, tracker-ridden, surveillance capitalism that's trying to trick us or manipulate us into do things, but these really nice open places that we can move around as our values match, you know? Yeah. I think the other side of it too is, is you know, we need to you know, make sure that the people who are the content creators, people that are that have uh, you know large followers and are and are putting out information that people want to read, you know, make sure that they're that they're uh, that they're supporting this as well because you know where the content is, that's where the people will go. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully we can get more people people paying for it and supporting it. Yeah, I I'm doing it myself, and I I definitely encourage people who can because it's it's fantastic. All right, what else did I want to cover about this? It's open source. It's Ruby, which is not the most amazing open source for Python people, but it is open source, which is very cool. You can go get it. There's a Python package called Toot. There's also a CLI. You call you cover it. We covered this a little bit last time, Brian. I said I'd go into it more, right? I think. Yeah. Um. So one of the things I did. Um, come back to that. One of the things I did on, uh, one, one thing that's annoying is if you're logged in, it's really hard to pull up an individual tweet on your own instance without like it being in the, the show here. But one of the things I did Saturday morning, Brian, do you see the, the third button from the second row of my stream deck here? Okay. So I wrote an, a I integrated the Mastodon API into my stream deck. So now whenever we start a show, I just push that button and off it goes. Nice. I think actually I, I might have pushed the one for talk Python this time because they're the same screen, just slightly different. But anyway, uh, will you push that button and it'll uh, kick it off and that'll just post uh, a toot, I guess uh, we would say. <laughs> and then finally, I still can't get over that. It's just funny. It's a little much, <laughs> is it? All right. And then finally, finally, um, one thing that's really nice is if you have a Chrome based browser uh, like Vivaldi, or one of those, or Brave, you can right-click on the tab and stay, say install. Mine says install Fostodon because I was on Fostodon, but if you were on you know, Mastodon Social or whatever it's called, it would say install that. And then you get a progressive web app that is, I would say, probably the best app on the desktop for doing Mastodon. Ooh, neat. Got hotkeys, all sorts of fun stuff. Um, lots of, you can do like the advanced view with columns and all of these things. So I'll I encourage that out. Yeah, so I encourage people to check this out. Oh, one one more thing on Toot. Uh, we'll come back to Clovember in a little bit. Maybe this is relevant here, but this is a, a library, Python package, that you can use to talk to Mastodon. I have no idea how to use it. It's completely opaque. It's like star, 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 org, star, star, kwrgs callable or so i mean you just there's it doesn't have any structure it's all like run done up at runtime you can't tell like what are the functions even if you dir it like it doesn't have any functions or anything you can call so how it's used i have no idea it's 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 hard to use but the one thing you can do is it has a cli that will generate your oauth login tokens and then you just use that directly with requests or acpx or something so to as far as i can tell is not particularly useful until some sort of example is written even the tests don't seem to help very much. But what it does do is it'll generate your access tokens that you can use in the rest of your code, which is pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. Nice. All right. Yeah, well, um, people definitely should check that out. 
Adam, you're up next. All right. So I guess, you know, a little bit of a, a backstory to, you know, a couple episodes ago, you you were talking about uh, an article that I that I posted on my blog about this new feature that we had invited and uh, brought into um, Sanic um, about a month ago. And I, well, I was on Twitter at the time, but I sent a tweet to you kind of with a little bit of a correction. Um, and so I guess that's kind of why, why I'm here is I just wanted to kind of clear up a little bit. Um, the, the feature that, that we added into Sanic um, is this worker manager. Um, and the idea uh, covered in the blog article is sort of what an imp- implementation of that might look like. Um, so, so really, kind of what what the what the article was trying to cover was how to build a celery-like clone. Um, Can and, we take a step back really quick and just have sure, you give sure. the elevator pitch for Sanic, just for yeah. people who maybe haven't used it? Uh, sure. So, Sanic um, is uh, it's an async uh, uh, framework, web framework for building um, web applications. Uh, one of the things that it comes with is a built-in um, uh, web server as well. So it's both a web server and um, and a framework. So it does both p- parts. Um, right, so you don't need microwave gear or G unicorn or something along those lines? Correct. You can use something like UVCorn if you wanted to. Uh, so it can operate as an ASGI app. So, so that is a possibility. Um, but uh, generally... I find that most people that that use Sanic will will use the the integrated Sanic server because it's sort of built you know um, for uh, high performance. Um, it's it's you know optimized to work with the with the framework. The framework itself is generally uh, very unopinionated um, and sort of tries to get out of your way and, and provide you with the tools that you need to build an application, but not uh, dictate specific patterns. Um, um, so. Yeah, that's that's the sort of the, the short and long long pitch of it. Um, uh, last year, I I put uh, put together a book on on sort of different patterns and how you might build uh, production applications in it uh, with, with Sanic and, and and sort of what a um, you know what are some of the possibilities that are sort of outside the scope of just these documents here. So specifically, one of the things that we kind of had noticed and and really drove us to the, to what ultimately became the the worker manager that. Um, uh, feature is that you know Santa comes out of the box with uh, you know auto reload, uh, the ability to scale up multiple workers, all that kind of stuff that you would sort of expect. Um, but you might in older older versions you might have a different experience um, when you're doing development versus when you're in production mode. Uh, and so we wanted to kind of get rid of that so that every single time that you 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 boot up Sanic, whether you're in um, whether where you your local ho- local host or you're deploying it, you c- you get the same experience. You've got one process whose whole job is to sort of manage the whole show, uh, and then one or more of these worker processes that can be can be individual servers. And 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 the idea once we have that, um, it really uh, provide provide us the ability to take that abstract abstraction and turn it into something a little bit more and and allow individuals to inject arbitrary processes into it. So the example in the article was this cellular like um, worker manager. But you know, you one of the other big use cases that we see a lot with Sanic are people that are trying to build uh, chatbots. Uh, you know, maybe something for Discord or something like that. Um, so this would really make it very simple for you to to Run both a web application and a you know, chatbot all from one process, and have it all managed um, without having to scale up multiple, um, you know, multiple instances. Nice, yeah, yeah. So, does it uh, when you run these worker processes, can it run in? Does it run in a background thread? Or one of the things when I first talked about this that was a little unclear to me is, you know, once you have when you go into production, you farm out to a bunch of worker processes, typically, right? You know, you say like, we're going to run four worker processes and they're all going to, you know, round robin handle these requests. But yes, how, how, how does that, how does that management correlate back to these worker processes? Because if they all are kind of managing their own, then you're going to end up with, you know, a whole bunch of them. Uh, correct. So, so when you start up the application, and this actually is the whole reason you know, going back to to Brian's thing from earlier about uh, you know trying to keep things out of the global scope, and, and why I encourage people to to do that um, is is under the hood. You know, we're using the multiprocessing um, uh, from the standard library, so you know it's 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 very um, uh, easy to make some mistakes, 
And, and if you've got some code that is kind of sitting in the global scope, it, you might accidentally run it on all these different work processes that you don't necessarily want it to. So trying to keep your abstractions nice and tight and keeping everything's inside of functions and callables kind of avoids that. So to answer sort of your, your, your question is when you start up a, a worker process, you know, it's, um, there, there's two kinds, right? There's the processes that are meant for, for static servers and then for anything else that you might want. Um, the reloader is going to be one. We also have um, in the uh, extensions, we also provide um, out of the box a, a inspect utility. So it basically would give you a CLI um, uh, command line utility that you can sort of check the status of any operating workers so you can see, you know, how many things are running. Oh, that's cool. Um, if you wanted to sort of see, you know, how many requests are on each of the workers, you could kind of, you know, get that information. Right. Um, that stuff's hard if, to tell in production. You're like, it's kind of slow and this one seems stuck, but I don't know what the heck's going yeah, on. Absolutely. And, and and this is really sort of the thing that this has opened up because what happens, um, and for anyone that's ever done anything that's using multiple processes in Python, one of the things that, that the package uh, does provide you is these um, different primitives where you can short share state between them. Um, and in older versions of, of, of SANIC, there was no way that you could do that. Um, but one of the things that we now have is you could have, say, uh, one queue object, and every single one of your workers is able to push and pull information from that queue. Um, nice. You know, you can have you know, shared counters and, and um, it really kind of gives you a lot more flexibility that just didn't exist before. Cool. Well, it looks fantastic. And the other thing that you uh, put in here is cashews. What, how, what's the, how's cashews related back to this? It's not related back to this at all. This is just oh, this, this something. This is your second topic, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, sorry. I put it in the wrong order then. We'll, we'll come back <laughs> to that one then. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, this is really cool. And it's it's something that a lot of web frameworks don't have is this ability to richly manage stuff that shouldn't be processed during a web request. And a lot of times people end up running whole different servers, you know, Redis plus Celery or something fairly complicated. So this is really cool that it's kind of like tightly tied together there. So one actually kind of use case um, that that just just kind of give people a little bit of understanding of how you might actually use this in production. Um, so so uh, I use Seller very heavily um, as well as Sanic. Uh, one of the things that anyone that's used Celery knows about um, is there's this um, uh, function, uh, this service called Celery B, and basically the idea there is you're you're sort of scheduling these cron-like jobs that are going to run periodically over some defined schedule. Well, when you put all these things into, you know, Kubernetes applications, uh, you know, containers, uh, your DevOps guys come knocking on your door and say, how do I know that this thing is still running? Like, I want to be able to ping this and make sure that things haven't died. Um, and so that, like Kubernetes, that's sort of the, one of the things that it does for you, right? Is it, is it kind of checks the health of your applications and kind of restarts things. And it's very simple to do from a web application, not so easy to do from a service like Celery B. Um, so, what we did is um, we built Celery B into a SANIC worker process like this. So basically what it does is it's kicking off these jobs every, I don't know, say every 10 seconds, some some period, and it's sending a, a ping, uh, HTTP ping over to the, to the SANIC service that's running it, and then we can keep the state there. And then it's super simple for Kubernetes at that point to sort of see what's the health of this application and is it still running. Yeah. Very cool. That's that's a really interesting use. Awesome. All right, Brian, can we talk about our sponsor this week? Yeah, let's. Awesome. All right, well, this week, once again, we have back Microsoft, and such great supporters of the show. And if you've not yet checked out Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub, you definitely should. As we all know, starting a business is hard. They provide a bunch of support, both in financial grants for compute and other cloud services, as well as access to a mentorship network and other types of advice, basically, and connections. So it's a free service. All you have to do is apply. You don't have to be third-party validated. You don't have to be VC-backed. You just apply, and once you're in, you're in. And unlike the requirement to go live in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, New York City, one of these places where there's a, a, a community of founders and mentors and experts, you get access to a similar network from wherever you are. 
So it's not about who you know, but, or who you have access to because you can use their network. So they give you access to hundreds of mentors across a range of disciplines like idea validation, fundraising, management and coaching, sales and marketing, and a whole bunch of specific technical stress points. And you'll be able to book a one-on-one meeting with these mentors, many of whom are former founders themselves. And it'll really give you a leg up making connections and keeping your, your company on the right track. In addition to that, you get a bunch of Microsoft Cloud credits, a bunch of GitHub credits. They partnered with OpenAI, a global leader in AI research and development, to provide exclusive benefits there as well. To make your idea a reality with the critical support you'll get from Microsoft for startups, join, to join, just visit pythonbytes.fm slash foundershub2022. The link is in your show notes. So as always, thanks to Microsoft for supporting the show. Yes, thanks. Hi, right, Brian. What's next? Well, I wanted to touch on Fast API a little bit, and um, uh, specifically, there was some there was a new release that caught my attention. So, um, a zero point eighty seven point zero. Um, I, I'm gonna. We should bug them about being zero verse still. Um, but so, right. yeah, come on, it's it's definitely production ready by now. Um, <clears throat> so anyway. Uh, well, so th- what I wanted to talk about is some of the some of the interesting bits here, which I thought was really kind of cool of Sebastian and others to to handle. So one of the things is they upgraded to Starlet, and I think it's Starlet zero point two or something. Anyway, I'm not sure which version of Starlet, but the the Starlet version they changed to had a test client update uh, and updated from a from from requests to HTTPX, and that's pretty interesting. So oh, yeah. uh, Fast API gets that also. But what happens with that is the the test client actually had some breaking changes with it, um, and somebody named uh, Cludex uh, said or just decided to create a tool called Bump um, Bump Test Client. And um, this is pretty cool because uh, the idea is you've got some test code already that it depends on test client, and you can um, you can run this uh, bump test client on your test code, and it upgrades it to the new interface. Cool is that? That's just pretty. Oh, that cool. is cool. Yeah, uh, nice extra bit of uh, upgrade help for people. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out is is that uh, there's a lot of documentation changes. So there's one of the things he added was um, a help maintain fast API. I say he, but I think there's a lot of people working on fast API now. So I'm not sure who added it, but help maintain. And um, and I, I think this is really pretty great because let's see if I can find it. Yeah, um, it's focusing on like this section of help, help maintain it focuses on a couple of things that people don't think is very glamorous, but is hugely helpful for open source projects. And that's helping with the issues um, because a lot of pe- a lot of issues are really just questions or a user doesn't understand how to use it or they're using it in a weird way. And it's just a knowledge gap thing. So helping those people out, great help for the maintainers so they can focus on building new features. Also kind of helps to point out maybe that there's documentation holes. Um, the other mm-hmm. bit is uh, pull reviewing pull requests. And both of the both of these topics have um, ha- pop into bigger sections. So like the helping with GitHub issues, talk about how to do that. So there's some documentation on how to help, like understand the question that somebody's asking and maybe maybe change the question if it's not clear, um, trying to reproduce other people's problems, uh, suggesting solutions. You know, uh, if you think that it's been solved by somebody, if it's solved, but it's still open, ask if you can close it. These sorts of uh, this sort of help, especially with large projects, helps a ton. And so I think it's cool to, to that this has been focused on. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out, which, which I thought was cool, was um, uh, we we covered Rough uh, earlier uh, on one of the other episodes, and it's a uh, Rust-based linter. But uh, Fast API is now using it internally to to, to lint their the Fast API code. So that's kind of fun. Yeah, that's um, fun. The now. One of the reasons why I was looking at this is coming back to uh, the little project PyTest Check that I'm working on. I'm refactoring it. I also thought the README is lame, um, so I, I was looking at the the um, the Fast API README, which is pretty interesting. Um, the one of the and so I'm looking at different readmes to see if uh, 
the getting inspiration from others. And the Fast API README is an interesting thing that I don't think I've seen in very many other open source projects. Uh, there's the there's a logo, of course, and then some links to documentation and source code, which actually I think are really handy to have right there at the top of the README. Uh, and then some features of why key features, why you'd want why want to use it. But it really feels like a sales page, also somewhat. But the 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 sponsor list is interesting. It directs right to some of the direct sponsors of the project. And having sponsors that actually show up in the README, and look, tech, Talk Python training is there too. Uh, so go, Michael. But the, the that's an interesting way to you know pay for large open source projects. Kind of cool idea. Um, and yeah. then opinions, like uh, you know uh, people that liked it and references. This still feels like a single page uh, before it gets into the meat of the normal stuff that you kind of see in a readme. It's like a sales pitch page or a single single page uh, landing page. And kind of maybe that's what a readme should maybe be to try to encourage people to use it. I mean, we're not buying a product, but we we do gain. Uh, it is growing a project if more people use it. So selling them on the project is kind of a cool idea. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, a couple thoughts I have here. Okay. One, just uh, on the sponsor thing, that's one of the reasons it's really appealing to sponsor Fast API is the visibility that you actually, it's yeah. not much, it's not much to get a link back to your site, but it's a little bit and it's better than just a, the good feeling of, well, I paid to support this project and maybe buried in the contributors.md somewhere there's like my company name, but no, it's like a, a little bit of, of give back and you know, we get a, we get some traffic from that and it's, it's really nice. And I think it's one of the things that other projects could do that have decent sponsorships is just to give a little visibility back like that. Um, I, yeah. just, I, I think it's working really well for Sebastian because you can see I'm not the only one up there and my company's yeah. not. And then there's, so there's, it's, a, it's there's some of these listed here, but then if you go to the documentation page, it has like even, uh, even more sponsors. So right. Exactly. Those really, are like really, gold sponsors uh, that get yeah. the picture. Um, then two, I'd like to hear Adam's thoughts about sort of marketing your your web project and and presenting it in this way because um, with Sanic you're in a pretty parallel situation. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely, we do. You know, I, I agree 100%. It's it's definitely a sales p pitch, and and to your point about you know you're not necessarily buying anything, but you're you're buying into it, right? You're you're buying yes. into the project. Is you know you're you're, you're the the it is you're starting to build something and so you're going to be putting a lot of investment into that so um you know i think it's sort of you know especially with with some uh some types of projects it's a little bit more important than others um that if you need to specifically kind of buy into a specific philosophy and how you're going to be building something with it so so absolutely um you know we we have um uh do something a little bit similar um you know trying to trying to make sure that uh you know, sponsors have a little bit, you know, have some visibility um, as well. Um, so I think, but, and this is actually one of my pet peeves. One of the, in my opinion, one of the most important things you touched on it is putting those links up at the very top. You said that, you know, it's got the, there's a link to the source code and the documentation. And, and this, and the source code, I feel like is the one that's almost always missing. You know, yeah. usually these readmes don't just show up in GitHub, right? They show up on pipi.org, you know, maybe they yeah. show up in, uh, you know, the, you know, read the docs if it's getting, if it's, you know, that's where it's going to. And it drives me nuts when I land on some sort of documentation website or something like that. And I can't get back to the source code, you know, the, the, that, so, so I love to see that, that right up front, um, you know, the oh, catchy logo. Like, you go and say like, edit the documentation in GitHub so that you can navigate yeah. back up the tree. Like that, that's probably my easiest way back, right? That's, that's, that's not that's how That's what I do. Be. And exactly. <laughs> and you end up on some page, you know, 10, 10 levels deep inside of the project and that's not where you want to go. Yeah. So Sanic looks like you got it right there. You got source code. Also, many of the, so a lot of people don't know this, but a lot of, a lot of on PyPI, the homepage often links to the GitHub repo. It doesn't have to, people can link it to whatever they want to, but. Um, this this off, often links to the source code. But yeah, the source code right there on Sanic, it's pretty good. Hey, you got sponsors too. Neat. Cool. Yeah, well, I see the I see, I see the image isn't loading there, so maybe I need to look into that. But uh... <laughs> well, it, I think it loads on the on the the GitHub thing. But okay, that's good. Yeah. Um. But one of oh, while we're looking at readmes, the, the I want I did want to also mention uh, Will because you know we have to. Uh, Will McCoogan. It's Tuesday. 
Yeah. Um, so one of the cool things that he's got she on both- Mastodon yet? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I believe so, yes. Yeah. Okay. So on both rich and textual, there's a feature in their readmes of these dropdowns. So you can you can like uh, open up a section that maybe like like this, uh, the rich library talking about different ones. It would be kind of overwhelming to have the whole thing listed here, but having them collapsed is kind of a neat idea with little things. So um, and one of the great things about readmes is I don't know how he does this, but I can go find out because it's all in open source. I can just look at the readme code and uh, and see how it's done. I believe, yeah, I believe it's a it's a GitHub specific thing. So I'd be curious actually to see how that might carry over to like PyPy.org oh. or something like that. Well, look, Let's see if it works. So uh, yeah, bear with us. We're looking at to see if the dropdowns work on PyPI, and they seem to. So oh, neat, amazing. It's, it's a two, <laughs> it's a two e embedded in a webby. <laughs> Um, and I have seen this other places too. I think um, uh, I can't remember where, but uh, there's a couple of open source projects that use these dropdowns that I've seen. So anyway, uh, yeah, that's probably nice. enough on this topic. <laughs> no, it's not, Brian. No, it's not. No, it's not. Let okay. Me, let me just. I just want to put out a, a call to people because I tried this on the social medias and it didn't really get me far. And maybe it's just going to go nowhere. I want to do a Talk Python episode on awesome tools for managing your readme and your change log and like oh, release yeah. notes and stuff. I think that'd be fantastic. I know there's things like release drafter and others, but none of them are big enough to be their own show. So I want to do like a, a set of like, here's a bunch of cool tools that you can do. So if people are using some, please just tweet them to me, tweet them to me, email them to us, however you want to get them to me. I don't, that's fine. Uh, but it'd be really helpful if I could find, you know, five, 10 of these things. And then we could do a really cool show about like how to, automate and do a bunch of these cool things cool. as well as just talking about what you got here. I'll definitely send you a couple ideas. Awesome. I bet you got some. Yeah, cool. All right. And now let's uh, talk about this thing that Brian Skin sent in. Brian's been on the show before. Thank you, Brian. And he said, uh, if you don't know, uh, close, close Ember dev is coming, coming up soon. So close them, close Ember. <laughs> like December, closing on December, closing open source issues and other work on December, however you verbalize that. Uh, it's live. And so the idea here is let's open, let's support open source maintainers by helping them close issues and PRs through November. I said December, I guess it's November. So we're halfway through. And it's a month-long initiative for maintainers and contributors and open source enthusiasts to go through and encourage healthier open source practices and raise awareness about maintainer burnout. So it's not about asking maintainers to do more, but it's like, how can we come in and and do some of the tending of the garden and the cleanup of things? You know, when I go to an open source project and I see, oh, there's PRs for the last three months and they're all open. And like, uh, I probably don't want to contribute to this because the chances are it's just going to be another thing sitting there for months and it's going to get ignored and I don't care. Right. I mean, I want this change, but not enough that I'm going to do the work when there's a 90% chance that it's not going to get integrated. Right. I feel called so, out. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> so the idea is like, well, let's go and kind of help people with these aspects of it. Right. So there's, uh, it, it talks about, uh, it being a two way street and trying to do some of the, the healthy, uh, healthy things to help people. Right. It also laments my challenge of like, stale uh, PR. So it has two aspects. It has them for maintainers and for contributors. So for maintainers first, it says, keep in mind that the fundamental point of Clozember is maintainer health. And so take care of yourself, you know, go diet, exercise. Also has some really interesting things about decluttering your digital life. Um, I think that's actually really interesting. I mean, we all just kind of have cruft build up, cruft like on our physical desk, crufts on our computer desktop, cruft in like all the email and other things and really cleaning those things out. It's really nice. Like uh, I just formatted my Mac mini after two years, about three days ago. And it's like, I got a brand new computer. I'm like, oh, I love to sit down at this thing. There's no new computer here. It's just the junk is gone. And so I think that's an interesting angle. Um, it talks about what you can do to help as a maintainer facilitate this. So um, you can get people help with triaging, with infrastructure, with technical writing, for example, like that toot thing. If there was a tutorial or any form of example or any line of code anywhere that said, here's how you use it, it would be way more used than if it's just, here's its name, good luck, you know? And so having somebody do a little technical writing or put together a tutorial or even translation, all those would be really, really fantastic. 
right? So the idea is if you're feeling up to it, um, you could identify some areas that would benefit from that. Uh, you can edit your README to have and create a closember issue to let people know that this is an option. And you can actually go over here and see uh, that right now there's 729 repositories, like some that come to mind that are, this is a search for all languages. It just happens to be Python's right at the top for all of them. So TQDM, NumPy, IPython, SciPy, Notebook, Spider, Volume, like all of these are Python. I don't really understand how that's happening, but uh, maybe it's maybe the algorithm. Anyway, like you could go to any of these that inspire you and pull these up. All right, so that's on the maintainer side. It's like some things that you can do to help set it up, right? Just like label things and so on. And then on the community side, it says first, this is going to be on GitHub or GitLab. You need to know Git. So take a moment and learn Git <laughs> because <laughs> eh, <laughs> this is how you work with these things. Uh, and, and able to just like run the tools, right? Like if, if I'm going to help you build a house, I should know how hammers work, right? At least a little bit. So um, then it says you can start taking a look at... Um, uh, GitHub issues that maybe you've opened and see whether or not they're outdated or you could close stuff that you've sort of put out there in the burden and then go through that list like I talked about. And uh, yeah, then finally, there's like a celebration close boards. So down here, you can see there's a overall, there's like a, a scoreboard type thing. It says overall, there's of the 16,531 issues and PRs, 496 have been closed. And then there's like a scoreboard of the closed issues by project. So like Datalad is uh, the number one, and then AstroPy is just right behind it. SciPy is up there, and it, it tails off from there. So anyway, I, uh, thanks, Brian Skin, for sending this in. And you know, people who want a, an angle to get into open source or want to contribute a little bit more, especially with some holiday time coming up, you know, here's something you could do to, that might mix up what you're doing. Yeah, what do you think? absolutely. One of, the, one of the things that you know, I, I try to do as much as I can um, is try to advocate for people to get involved with sort of the small things, you, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so I, I try to make, you know, if somebody's going to come on, you know, and, and create an issue, I say, well, great. You no, know, you, you can go, you can make this PR. This is how you can go about and do it. So, so um, as, as a maintainer, I think, you know, these types of uh, um, you know, projects, there was just one also in October. There was a, Hacktoberfest. Yeah. So I Hacktoberfest, guess, yeah. So I guess maybe something's coming in December. Um, but Hacktoberfest, I think, is a little more about creating, like creating your first PR or making your first contribution. This is more about, like, I think, clean up and closing out. Yeah. But yeah. So I, all the people from Hacktoberfest create a bunch of PRs and now they need closed. <laughs> yes, I participated in both. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, one of the things that, that I wanted to point out is we did talk about the uh, how to help how to help maintain fast API. So that would be all of actually all the tips that I read on how to help maintain fast API um, apply to every open source project. So if if the open source project that you're interested in doesn't have really good how to how to help uh, tips, the, the fast API stuff applies to almost everything, um, like reproducing bugs, answering things, um, and sometimes. Uh, sometimes it's obvious from like a, a pull request or an issue that nobody's really excited about this thing and maybe it should just be closed. So that's helpful also is to just they bring that up and say, hey, uh, core maintainer people, this seems like it should be closed. Should we go ahead and close that? Um, so actually on that that point, I'm, I'm, I won't necessarily uh, name names here, but uh, there was a, a project that... Um, um, not one that not one that I'm involved uh, maintain, but it's a project that you know was talking about retiring a specific feature, right? And and it was sort of you know no one's really using it. The, the it doesn't really seem like it has very much activity. And they put they just put a little notice up there. And just by because people were engaging in conversation and because people were were looking and were willing to you know write a couple of lines or or even in GitHub where you go and you just click you know, a little thumbs up or whatever. They saw all this interaction that people do care about this feature. And, you know, it, it really does impact, you know, as a maintainer, if you, you know, the more people that are engaged in, in discussion, um, uh, the better it is to decide, you know, sort of how, how to steer the ship. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, maybe it's just, hey, somebody suggested this. I'm not sure. What does the community think, right? Having, having an opinion might be helpful, right? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. All right, you know what else is helpful? Cashews. <laughs> well, they're definitely delicious, but uh, <laughs> they are. So, so this pop, yeah, this, this popped up in my, um, you know, you you go into GitHub, there's the explore feed. So it just was in the top of my my feed, uh, and it really caught my eye just because th 
this is the type of thing that I find myself building and rebuilding on every single project that I do. Uh, so basically, you know, at its core, what Cache uses, it, it, it calls itself an async cache framework for simple API to build fast and reliable applications. And, and you know, when you look at sort of what they're providing you uh, out of the box, it's a very feature rich, but it's super simple to get to get it up and running. Like the you know I think you just really basically need one line to 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 call a setup, and as after you do that, you're just adding decorators to stuff. And you know I, I think this is really sort of um, you know provides some really good foresight on how to build a very nice clean API that can be used in a lot of different situations. So you know on on their 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 GitHub README, which I think is pretty well done. Um, um, it gives you sort of how you might use this on a typical web application to cache, you know, cache some information on um, on uh, on the request. Um, but you could really use it in a whole bunch of different different features. So a couple of different things that I kind of wanted to, that really struck struck me as really uh, interesting uh, is number one, um, they provide support for uh, you know, doing in-memory caching, uh, also Redis, which is very, very common, and also a a write to disk, which I believe uses SQLite. Um, um, we talked about disk cache, uh, which is it looks like the foundational thing probably for the the disk uh, the disk version of that caching, and also dill instead of pickling, you dill things, so you can <laughs> you can store more uh, a wider variety of items into your cache, which is kind of cool. I'm not familiar with Dill, but it sounds like it's probably good. Yeah, I don't know how how much uh, you know you combine Dill and cashews on a normal basis, but uh, I guess it could be done. <laughs> no, but so so one of the things that I think is really neat that they built into this is there's a cache on top of a cache, and and, and what I mean is you know let's say you you're you know putting all this information, these really expensive operations into Redis or Disk Cache or, or something like that. Um, they also have what it looks like is maybe in in application memory cache where you don't even necessarily need to go do those network calls every single time that you want to go um, um, fetch that. And I feel like sort of, you know, there's sort of like that old uh, saying that in, you know, computer science, there's, you know, there's two hard things in, in computer science. There's cache invalidation, uh, naming naming things, and off by one errors, right? <laughs> so, exactly. So, so I feel like they sort of like, are solving some of these problems, and they've got a couple of really simple ways that you can you can do cache invalidation. You know, ways that you can. Um, it, it just it really strikes me as a very well thought out um, um, uh, package. But one of my favorite things that I noticed is one of the ways that you can invalidate a cache is by rate limiting. Well, rate limiting is itself a huge area, uh, especially for for web applications. Um, and you know, if you use package like cashews you know you're getting two different you know two different requirements for one right here because you know it, it can it can do the you know do double duty for you so I, I think this is um i haven't used this yet um but it looks super clean it looks like a very nice uh, very intuitive and, and I'm, I'm pretty excited to try to try to this one out for sure what an interesting kind of negative cash this rate limit thing is so the idea is if you call it, you can put it onto a function. You say, if you call this function more than 10 times in a minute is the, the default the example there, um, then you get, uh, you basically get banned from calling it for a while. So instead of saying, we're going to scale it by, by saving the answers to the questions you're asking to this function, we're going to save performance and uh, you know, CPU availability and whatnot by only allowing you to call too much. And if you do it too much, like you're done, you're out. Similar with circuit breakers for errors. If there's too many errors, it's just going to stop for a while. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and there's also this, um, there's also, you know, I, I kind of glossed over it, but uh, one of the, the things that they did for, for cache invalidation is there's sort of this, um, because it's using async IO under the hood, it looks like it's got this ability to sort of refresh your cache automatically. So, so one of the things that you often have problems with caches is, you, you know, you might have um, stale data in there that, right. that you want, you know, how do you get rid of that stale data? And so you can basically set up, it looks like, like, you know, in the background, it's, uh, it's called early, early refresh or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, what it'll, you know, in the example that they give you, you know, if you've, sort of 
you know, called this, uh, you know, within the, the the given time period, it'll automatically go and sort of refresh it for you in the background, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Okay. So this one says, I want the cache time to be 10 minutes, but if it gets called on minute seven to nine, in terms of the age of the cache result, go ahead and recompute it so that, you know, in the background, right, give them the answer that that's cached back, but then actually call it so that you, because, you know, if it takes 30 seconds to compute this thing or whatever, right, it takes a long time. Every now and then there's going to be those gaps where it, it expired and you hit it again, right? And so here's a way to kind of preempt that so nobody sees the the slow version. Hmm. There's a lot of interesting ideas here. Yeah, way to go caches. That's cool. That's pretty like cool. Krukov. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Awesome. Well, good find, Adam. Brian, yeah. how about our extras? Yeah, how about them? I don't have anything extra. Do you have something? Uh, let's go to Adam. Adam, anything else you want to give a shout out to while you're here? Uh, sure. I just noticed that um, definitely voting season is 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 here. You know, there was just a big vote in in the U.S. We uh, I live in Israel. We just had election season here, but uh, now we've got Python elections coming up. So, so nominations right. for the Python Steering Council are open. Uh, I think the way okay. that it works is that you have to be a core member to to do a nomination, but Anybody that wants to can go on to their discourse and, and, you know, if there's a candidate that you, that you support, you can, you know, you can reply to the comments, you can engage in the conversation. And uh, I think that's really cool and really, um, you know, a super way for people to um, sort of, you know, engage with the larger community. Yeah, very nice. And I actually have something related to that. Uh, where is it? It's hiding. Um, the, uh, to pull out of my notes, maybe I didn't pull up, but the PSF survey Oh, yeah, here it is. It's just uh, there. David Lord put this out here. Uh, speaking of web frameworks, we've covered them a lot. Let's bring Flask into it as well. So uh, over here on Mastodon, David says, take the PSF developer survey. It's closing in a few days. Uh, that was yesterday. So people should go and do that if they haven't. Pretty sure I already did. I don't want to vote twice, but I also don't want to not vote. It's a dilemma. <laughs> so anyway. It's really great that David put out, that out there. So uh, another thing, it's not quite voting, but it's, you know, tallying, tallying your opinion there. All right, uh, I got a couple other things. Also, quick, you know, just a shout out to your book while you're here, Python Web Development with Sanic. People can check that out as well. So excellent. Uh, let's see. This one, no, that one is, that one's just a joke. So I think actually, Brian, that's all I got for uh, extras. So. All right. You ready for a joke? I am. All right, over here. Again, I wish I could pull these up separately. I have to log out, but then I can show you the other stuff. And by the way, Samuel Colvin just uh, showed up on uh, Mastodon as well. He wasn't there yet, so people can go uh, of pydantic fame. So uh, when all this stuff with Twitter came out, I thought this was a pretty hilarious. You remember there was the switch of what did it mean for the the blue mark, the blue check mark to be on an account. It used to mean that you were verified, and there's lots of rules about like showing your ID and having a Wikipedia page and there's like rules to get that check mark. And yeah. then Elon said, well, we could just pay for that. And a bunch of people started impersonating people and doing all sorts of <laughs> funny shenanigans. Well, yeah. this this is breaking here. Um, we've just noticed on Twitter that the JavaScript verified account that it's the program, the, the, the Twitter name is Real Programming Language with 51 million followers. And there's a big message on it, Brian. What's the message say? Uh, it's... It's been canceled. Suspended. Account suspended. Twitter suspends accounts that violate the Twitter rules. JavaScript has been banned from Twitter for impersonating a real programming language. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, it's pretty good. All right. Well, that's what I got for you this week in terms of jokes. JavaScript nice. has Very been nice. suspended on Twitter. Uh, you know, and uh, I just speaking of Twitter, just if you want some humorous news, just Googling Twitter on Google News. Is hilarious. Um, just to me. I mean, it's also sad, but also funny. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Adam, thanks for joining us this week and congrats on Sanic. It looks like it's been going strong for a long time and it's got quite the community there. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We've been we've been going strong since uh two thousand sixteen or so. Wow, that's awesome. All right, Brian, thanks everyone. Thanks for being here.